Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, Retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Welcome to Moments in Leadership. In this episode, I interview Brigadier General Craig Nixon from the United States Army. As you will come to learn, General Nixon had quite an interesting career. He's a graduate of Auburn University and a member of the Ranger Hall of Fame. Over his 29-year career, General Nixon served in a wide range of assignments, including seven tours in special operations units. He spent over four years in combat, including tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, as the Director of Operations for Joint Special Operations Command and as the Commander of the 75th Ranger Regiment, following an assignment as the Director of Operations for United States Special Operations Command. He returned to Iraq as the Deputy Commanding General of the 25th Infantry Division. He has participated in several different combat operations, including the Invasion of Panama, Task Force Ranger Operations in Mogadishu, Somalia, Operation Joint Guardian in Bosnia, and seven deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. He is a combat decorated soldier whose awards include the Distinguished Service Medal, the Silver Star, three Bronze Stars, and the Purple Heart. He has been awarded the Combat Infantryman Badge with a second award, a Master Parachutist Badge with a Combat Jump Star, and of course, his Ranger Tab. After retiring from the Army in 2011, he joined the McChrystal Group as one of the original partners and is currently the CEO of Nixon Six Solutions, a consulting firm focused on growth and market entry strategy leadership and mergers and acquisitions. He is also an avid supporter of veteran-focused nonprofit organizations. Over the course of this interview, we discussed his time as a lieutenant in the regular Army and the challenges surrounding leadership in the post-Vietnam era. We then move on to discuss his time as a captain during the invasion of Panama, where he conducted an airborne operation with the Ranger Regiment. We then move on to discuss his time in Mogadishu during Task Force Ranger operations, and specifically the events that surrounded what is commonly referred to as the Battle of Mogadishu and memorialized in the book Black Hawk Down. He discusses the importance of maintaining momentum in combat and winning the information war. We then move on to talk about his time as the Ranger Regimental Commander, or the RCO, and discuss some of the leadership lessons he learned as the commander of that unit while Pat Tillman was killed during his command. Before I transition into the actual interview, I would like to read General Nixon's Silver Star Citation to Major James C. Nixon, United States Army, for gallantry in action. Major James C. Nixon distinguished himself by gallantry in action against hostile enemy forces on 4 October 1993 during night combat operations in support of United Nations Operations Somalia II in Mogadishu, Somalia. Major Nixon led repeated efforts to bring a relief force to the aid of a decisively engaged friendly personnel at a helicopter crash site. At great personal risk, Major Nixon continuously exposed himself to heavy small arms, machine gun, and rocket-propelled grenade fire while leading his force through the war-torn city. Upon reaching the vicinity of the crash site, he established a defensive perimeter and continued to expose himself to enemy fire throughout the night until all personnel were accounted for. Major Nixon's heroic actions resulted in a successful rescue mission. Major Nixon's selfless devotion to duty, total disregard for his own safety, and inspirational leadership under fire saved the lives of fellow soldiers and reflects great credit upon him and the United States Army. Welcome, General Nixon. Thank you so much for taking some time to join me on Moments in Leadership. This is exciting for me and hopefully the audience as well too because you are the first person who is not a Marine 
on the on the podcast. So thank you for your uh, your courage. <laughs> And, uh, and and coming on and, and representing the Army. Thanks for taking the time. Well, I'm glad to make this joint for you. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, exactly my, right. My we're, pleasure. we're going for purple here. We're going for purple. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll get a little uh, thing to wear in my uniform. Well, let's jump right into it. I think one of the things that makes this podcast so interesting is that people really like to hear the stories of people who did full careers in the military. And the interesting thing about 100% of everybody who served in the military is we all start out at the bottom, right? We either we all start out of as an E1 or an O1, but only 1% ever really makes it to general officer. So hearing your stories and getting you to tell some of them is 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 a fantastic opportunity. I'm wondering if you can start out by telling me some of the stories that you remember from your first 5 years in your career that you look back on as those crystallizing moments, those aha moments that stay with you forever. They can be successes or failures. It can be stories about senior leaders that you worked with. But we'd, I'd love to hear about your starting out with your second lieutenant time and some of those crystallizing moments. Sure, Dave. Uh, it's, it's interesting. So I, I think it put it in context. I joined the military in 82. So you were at that, you were still in kind of the post-Vietnam transition before the Reagan era actually hit. So the army that I joined changed pretty rapidly over the, my first tour. I was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado in 4th ID in a mechanized unit, 1-8 infantry, and reported into uh, my unit and took over as a platoon leader. I was supposed to have 41 people in my platoon. I had uh, 19 people because we couldn't man the platoons back in those days. My platoon sergeant was supposed to be a sergeant first class was actually a staff sergeant, and everybody else was uh, sergeants or you know sergeants or below. So very undermanned, both in numbers and very undermanned as far as uh, senior leadership there. And it was a different, it was a very different army at that point. About two weeks after I got there, they did a urinalysis test, which had just started. Six of my 19 people came up hot on the urinalysis test to include the platoon sergeant. About half the battalion came up hot on the urinalysis test. And that was, you know, that was the level to see where we were at and frankly, kind of how frayed the organization was. And then in a very short period of time, I would say over the next three years that I was there to go from what I would call a pretty poor unit, not particularly well led to actually a very good unit very well led. And I, and I think the key lesson for me was the role that leaders have in setting the conditions and providing the example, and then also, you know, the resources required to do it. I was blessed. I had not my first battalion commander, but my second battalion commander was a guy named A. Clark Welch. Colonel Welch had been enlisted. He was actually direct commissioned in the Dominican Republic uprising. And then he did four tours in Vietnam. Had the DSC been wounded 13 times, he had 11 Purple Hearts, so he'd been shot to pieces. And then our command sergeant major at the time was a guy named Gary Luttrell, who was a Medal of Honor winner. So you can imagine as a young lieutenant, I've got my one little ribbon on my chest that I'm trying to get lined up. And you got this kind of grisly old battalion commander and sergeant major with, you know, rack of medals. And what I found from them was really that, that you had to be technically competent. So one of the things that Colonel Welch did there that I saw later in my career in the Rangers was we did officer deployments. And the Rangers would call them mongadize, but they were officer-only deployments. So the officers were the drivers, the officers carried the machine guns, the officers, which meant you had to be qualified to do it, which meant you had to be proficient to do it. 
the officers did the pre-mission checklist. So being technically competent in your field was really, really important. That really kind of transitioned as I continued in my career throughout. And so that took you through your lieutenant time then with the fourth ID? Correct. Yeah, I was really lucky. I did a year plus as a platoon leader, and then I did almost two years as a scout platoon leader. So I had a lot of time in leadership positions as a lieutenant, six months as an XO, and then I went to the advanced course. Went from there to second ID uh, in Korea, largely because I thought that was the fastest route to get to uh, the Rangers. And that was, your, that was your goal? You were trying to get over to the Ranger Regiment at that point in your career? At that point, I was. When I first joined the military, I didn't... There's a little bit of serendipity to even get in the military. So so I really wasn't focused on the Ranger, didn't know anything about him. During my tour at Carson, uh, I actually had, I escorted a general officer that said you should be in the Rangers and then tried to do it as a lieutenant and couldn't get through the process. Then it was like, well, I'm going to figure out a way to get there. And so, yes, it very much was a part of my decision process to go to Korea because I thought that was the best way to get to the Rangers. So did you end up serving as a company commander in in either of the infantry divisions before you went to the Ranger Regiment, or was it not until you got to the Ranger Regiment that you had your captain career time? I, I was a company commander first in 2ID. Years later, was a company commander in the Rangers. The Rangers are pretty interesting. As a platoon leader, company commander, and battalion commander, you had to have successfully done it someplace else. Okay. So it was part of the Abrams charter that you would do it in the conventional infantry and then come back, recompete again in the Rangers to do it. When you ended up going into the Ranger Regiment, you had already had a successful platoon leader time. You had already gone through school. You had come back to the uh, second infantry division. You had been a company commander there as well. And then you went into the Ranger Regiment. What would you say, reflecting back on your time in the regiment as a brand new captain, what were some of those crystallizing leadership lessons that you learned before you got to the Ranger Regiment that you felt was one of those things that just set you up for success with your time as a captain in the Rangers? What did you learn in the regular army that helped you lead and command in a more specialized unit? Well, I think I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but one was was being technically competent in your field. So I was very, you know, I came into the Rangers, although I had not spent a lot of time in the light infantry, most of my experience was in the mechanized infantry. I was competent in all of the technical aspects of being an infantryman. Secondly, I was physically and mentally hard, and Korea is a hard place to train. It's a hard place to fight. There wasn't a lot of distractions You could spend a lot of time in the weight room and run and all that. So I think I was physically fit. And and I had luckily been around uh, leaders like Welch, uh, like others in Korea that had been in special operations and provided what right looks like. So I felt like I had a pretty good base. But, you know, the reality is when you get there, you realize just how good the people around you are. And, And at the end of the day, I think, there was so much talent there, it makes each individual better. And you had mentioned that you had come into the military at a time, 1982, so it was transitioned out of the Vietnam War. You were understaffed, undermanned. What were some of the staff NCOs like that you worked with as a young officer, and what sort of impact did they have on you, either positively or negatively? I think in a, di- a couple of different groups. I mean, if you looked at the kind of the first group of non-commissioned officers, 
that I worked with at Carson were truly past the first platoon, were guys that had grown up in, in Vietnam and spent multiple tours in Vietnam. So they were very focused on those things that combat lessons learned from Vietnam and how do you apply those. Uh, and they had, had a lot of experience and they were willing to share that experience. What's interesting is we didn't have a lot of lieutenants. So most of the other platoon leaders, well, all the other platoon leaders in my company were actually non-commissioned officers. So I was competing, if you will, uh, with the you know, Sergeant First Class non-commissioned officers in most cases had multiple tours in Vietnam. And they made you up your game as you went through. That's the good side. The bad side is there was a tremendous amount of baggage those days from the standpoint of alcoholism and all the other, you know, acts of indiscipline. So you saw the full gamut of, you know, break class in case of war kind of guys to, you know, guys that really had a hard time. And we didn't understand PTSD or any of the aspects of that until much later. And I think we're still learning about that uh, through the last war we've been through. But there was a lot of guys that were self-medicating with alcohol in those days, which forced you to have to, you know, deal with that. You had to learn how to operate with that. And here you are as a, you know, young impressionable lieutenant, and then a semi-impressionable captain coming out of your your career course and coming back for command and second ID. How about some of the senior officers? your battalion commander, your regimental commander, what sort of impacts did they have on you either positively or negatively in terms of setting an example? Did you, was there any that you revered or were there any that you said, geez, that's a perfect example of somebody I'm never going to be like? Were there any, any of those moments that really just impacted you as a young man? I had a pretty wide variety of leaders. As I mentioned earlier, I mean, I had a tremendous amount of respect for uh, Clark Welch. He was a very different guy. He was an older guy as a battalion commander in, in those days. At the opposite end of the spectrum, I had a very young battalion commander when I was in Korea. So, I mean, they both brought different things to it. There was a wide range, you know, the army was changing in those days. So it was still a little bit of a party and go to the club kind of army. I think over that period of time, it, you know, transitioned from that into, I would say, a more disciplined and focused army. But you know, Korea was still a little bit of an outlier in that. So it was still a work hard and a party hard army in those days. I, I think as much as anything else is you, and what I love about the military is you get to work with a lot of leaders, the ability to kind of take what's good and bad from each leader that fits your personality is really the art to it. You know, different people at different levels or different skills at different levels are, are what will make you successful or not, particularly as you leading large organizations. So then you, you ha post your company command, you end up in the Ranger Regiment. And what year was that? I was in third battalion. The 75th Ranger Regiment has three battalions. First battalion is in Savannah. Second battalion is out of Fort Lewis. And third battalion is at Fort Benning, which is where the regimental headquarters is. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different organization because it's distributed across the country. And, and each one of the battalions kind of operates a little more separately, which is part of the reason you have more more senior people at every level. The first thing that strikes you there was just the sheer kind of talent and drive that was in that organization. So I was trying to think through it the other day, but it, it, we had about 40 officers. And so if you in, include kind of the time that I was there, you know, those guys rotate out. Let's just say it's 100, 100 officers that were in the battalion during the, the time that I was there. 
out of those that hundred guys, there's four of them became four stars, six of them became three star generals, another handful became you know two stars and one stars. The the numbers just don't equate. Out of that one kind of small organization, a lot of the senior leaders in the army filed through that organization, which partly was the reason behind the Rangers. So the Rangers, although the lineage back, went back to World War II, they were reformed post-Vietnam. And the purpose was to create an organization that if you put the right people and the right resources in, could show you what right looks like. That was General Abrams' charter. And his charter was, we'll send the very best there so they know what rights looks like, and then we'll send them back out to the Army so that they can migrate those tactics, techniques, and procedures out to the rest of the Army. And it has worked exceedingly well. And because of that, a lot of the senior leadership of the Army over the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years has flowed through that regiment or one of the battalions. What would you say was the, the your first memory of being in the Ranger Regiment and saying to yourself, whoa, this is different. What's your memory of that moment where you said, I'm in the big leagues. I am surrounded by talent. What was it or who was it? The second day I was there, I did an eight-mile run with, you know, Stan McChrystal was the three at the time. And Tom Turner, retired three-star, was, you know, so it was, you know, that was kind of the at a very small level. You know, the first battalion PT session we did where you had, you know, 800 Rangers out in formation reciting the ranger creed suddenly you realize this is a completely different environment because it, because the ranger creed is is recited every day during the pt and it's really a commitment from one ranger to the other that says i'm going to uphold myself and i'm going to uphold you to these standards and it runs a a broad spectrum from how how you're going to maintain your equipment how you're going to maintain yourself how you're going to comport yourself on the battlefield and so when you first get to the Rangers, you, you know, you have to learn, learn the creed. That's step one. And then, then you recite it every day. And then at some point you internalize it. And then ultimately you're spending every day trying to live up to it. At its core, that's the thing that separates that organization from most other organizations. Well, almost all the other organizations I've been involved with. It's a culture. Yes. Which is interesting because, you know, one of the components of this project is trying to take some of these leadership traits and principles that we've all learned and help other people adopt their own leadership traits and principles, even civilians. And so when when you hear stories about somebody who comes out of the big army and goes into the Ranger Regiment, and one of the most formative and important things that you learn immediately was that just the simple culture of a creed and reciting it every single day and believing it and holding each other accountable to that creed on a daily basis, you can extrapolate from that that cultures can be created in any organization that would lead to a higher level of elite performance than, say, somebody who's not trying to set a culture or not trying to be a leader in an existing culture that adheres to that. So if you had somebody come into the Ranger Regiment that didn't believe the creed or didn't want to act in accordance with it, I would assume they'd be bounced out pretty quickly. So the adoption of the culture is very important. And it sounds like that was a serious moment for you when you said, geez, this is, this creed is important. We're out here talking about it every single day and it just becomes part of your DNA. At one level, it's just the power of, of seeing that many people reciting it at one time. But then as you see it manifested 
in the activities that they do, whether it's in peacetime or in combat, then you see kind of the, the full circle of it. One of the stanzas is, you know, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And under no circumstances will I ever embarrass my country. Well, that those aren't just words. That means if you go down, I'm going to come get you. And it's a commitment from one ranger to another that says, hey, I'll come get you. Don't worry. And we've certainly seen and heard stories of that over the past two decades. Correct. So you're a captain. You, I'm guessing that you didn't come in as a company commander right away when you joined the Ranger Regiment, but what year was it roughly that you joined the regiment? I joined the Rangers in, in 88. Shortly after that was Operation Just Cause, 19, December of 1989. I, I remember it was right around Christmas because I was driving home from college and I remember hearing on the radio that we had sent troops into Panama. So it was between the 20th and the 25th, I'm sure. Yeah, we jumped in on the 20th. What was that like? Because that's got to be a moment. I'm assuming that you hadn't been in combat yet. You didn't come out of an airborne unit. Uh, 12 months into joining this Ranger Regiment and the battalion, you're strapping it on and you're jumping into combat. What were some of the things that were going through your mind as a young officer? At one level, I mean, I think most combat arms officers, regardless of the branch or whatever, I mean, at some level, they want to, what we used to call, see the dragon. So they want to be involved in combat. They want to test themselves and how they're going to do in it. So at some level, you're going through that. At another level, obviously, if you're not scared jumping out of a plane when nobody's shooting at you, something's wrong. If, if somebody's actually shooting at you, then if you're not scared, you get issues. So I, I think there's that part of it. I think one of the most surreal parts, so we, we had done training specifically for this. So we, we had been preparing to go into Panama long before we actually went. And had done a number of rehearsals and all that. So from that standpoint, it's kind of the routine. We're going through the routine. But then prior to getting on the aircraft, when the chaplains start pulling people off to the side and doing the last prayers before you get on, then it, then it changes as you do it. So we got on the aircraft, we loaded or we rigged prior to getting on the aircraft, and then we hung rucks in route. Again, about 10 minutes out, we actually stood up in the aircraft and recited, I'm going to circle back to the Ranger's Creed, but we recited the Ranger's Creed inside the aircraft on the way there. The feeling and the energy around that, I think that really was something that I'll never forget as we're moving forward. Almost every aircraft got shot, so that, that's not particularly well known, but I, I jumped into Rio Hato. We had all C-130s, which are the rotary wing aircraft. We came in at, uh, we jumped at 500 feet. Almost every one of the aircraft got shot. Multiple Rangers got wounded inside the aircraft. So it kind of looked like a laser light show coming up towards the aircraft. So all you really wanted to do was get out of the aircraft. So in my mind, it was, hey, just get me out of the aircraft. I get on the ground, I can deal with it. Got out of the aircraft. I was hearing, it, it was very much like training initially. So you're hearing the pop, pop, pop. You're seeing kind of gunfire, which we did that training all the time. And then suddenly the round started zinging by you and you realize uh, this is not training anymore. You know, how fast can I get to the ground? It was nighttime. Yes, it was uh, one o'clock in the morning. And airborne operations are really at least back then and probably still today, are very, you're just dumping a lot of people on the ground in a short period of time. It's a lot of mass confusion. So it's all about kind of linking up with whoever you can link up with to go do the objectives and then you sort it out when the sun comes up. For people that are listening that don't understand what, what's happening with an airborne operation, let's just take a minute to kind of explain to everybody. You've got a parachute on, and then you've got all of your equipment is also hanging off of you. And unlike peacetime training, now you're laden down with ammunition, real ammunition, real weight, weapons, 
It's pitch dark inside the aircraft. There's bullets hitting the aircraft. Normally, you jump somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 feet above ground level in training operations. You're jumping at 500 feet. Something doesn't go right. Reserve parachutes probably not even going to have time to do anything. Yeah, they don't open at 500 feet, at least the ones that we had at that time. So there was a lot of dis- discussion on whether we should actually even jump with reserve chutes since they wouldn't open anyway. But again, it gets back to what's your training. So our training was jump with a reserve. So we jump with a reserve. You know, and also in training, you have an idea of what the drop zone is like, unless it's your very first time jumping. You can, everybody becomes familiar with the drop zones, especially if you were at Fort Benning, you're probably very familiar with the drop zones there. You're jumping, you have no idea what the ground looks like. You don't know if there's rocks, there's no lights, there's no nothing. You're just jumping out and waiting to hit the ground. And like you said, trying to find your people and, and move on. But now you're on the ground. And I think one of the things I find really interesting, and I'm hoping you'll take a few minutes to talk about is there are those singular moments when you are a leader that you fully realize the gravity of what you're doing, the gravity of your responsibility. Was that your first moment where you realized and felt that gravity? How scared were you? And then how would you tell a young listener, a sergeant, a lieutenant, how do they prepare themselves for that inevitable moment? What was interesting is I was a staff officer at that point. I was supposed to take over a company the week of the assault. And because we ended up doing the assault, Tony Thomas stayed in as the commander. And then I took over right after that. So I was an assistant three at the time. So I didn't have, my job was really more operations for the overall battalion. Having said that, the way airborne operations work is it's so distributed and everybody's all over the place that, you know, basically I landed, I grabbed the first couple of rangers to get together and then we, and then you would just collect more rangers as you're doing it. You knew what the targets were. So you were, you're basically an infantryman or a small unit leader until you can get enough people there to put somebody in charge. So nothing about it's clean. I think there was enough leadership spread around that knew, you know, we had done the training, we had done the rehearsals, everybody knew what the targets were like. So when you landed in different spots and different organizations got together or different people got together, you were still able to accomplish them, the objectives as we went through. I don't know that there were any, you know, big thoughts of as a leader, what I was doing at the time was significant. It was pretty tactical. I, I think we can talk more about that later in some of the other positions that I was in. Uh, as an individual, I mean, yeah, it was my first time in combat. You know, to to me, uh, there's always a lot of lot of discussion around fear and are you scared or uh, and there's a lot of bravado around that. If I'm around people that don't get scared, period, I, I have real concerns because I think to me, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to operate with fear. And the way you get through that is training. And the way you get through that is confidence and drive. So I think we had done a lot of, you know, obviously I'd done a lot of training, but yeah, jumping out of a plane itself is inherently scary and getting shot at, I've found to be pretty scary as well. It's almost the ability to kind of compartmentalize that and still do what you need to do. So it's going on, it's in the background, but it's not the thing you're necessarily focused on. One of the uh, movies 
and I think we had talked about this before, but Save It Private Ryan, the initial scene, when you see the kind of tunnel vision and the slowing down and speeding up, that's the real reaction that occurs when you're in close-in combat because that's adrenaline kicking in. That's the natural, the body's natural reaction to that. And things seem like they have slowed down as you're going through it. And you can train that. Train it by sleep deprivation and training real hard and all all those things. You can replicate a lot of that uh, so that individuals can tap into those reserves when they're in combat. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it is you find out that people quit. Every combat operation I've been involved in, people have quit. Typically, because they mentally, you know, the mind gives out for the body, to old Dan Gable quote, but it's absolutely correct. They check out mentally long before they check out physically, and then some of them check out physically. I haven't been in a combat operation yet that people didn't quit, and these were, you know, some of the, the best warriors out there. The part that I was really wanted to get at was to a young lieutenant or a young sergeant out there listening, and it's possible right now that a lot of young officers and young enlisted haven't been to combat at all. And I agree with you that the, those scenes from Saving Private Ryan, I remember I went and saw that movie by myself when it first came out, and in those opening scenes, I remember thinking to myself, this is the first time I've seen anything that really resembles what I saw. It was the chips of the concrete and the dust. You just, you never saw that noise. You never saw that in training. I, I remember like it was yesterday, my very first thought was, this is nothing like I imagined. And you're right, just your senses just see and hear different things and things slow down. The most important thing I think you said, which was a huge moment for you, was that you can train to those things so long as you understand or have experienced them and making sure that you give the people that you're leading an opportunity to be exposed to something that's as close to real life as you're going to see in combat is really the way that you prepare for those inevitable moments as a leader. Yeah, I think it, I think that's exactly right. And I, and I would, I equate a lot of it to, it's kind of like dribbling a basketball. I mean, the reality is that junior leaders, lieutenants, even captains, sergeants, they have to be able to do routine things routinely. So it's, you can't be watching yourself dribble the basketball. You have to be good enough at dribbling the basketball. So you got your head up looking at the court, seeing where the defense is, seeing who you're going to pass to. The same thing applies in the military. So the guys that are that haven't done, they haven't put the work in, aren't technically competent, that don't have the self-confidence, will get in a firefight and watch themselves dribble, dribble the basketball at, at the expense of themselves and their units. We're going to transition here soon to some other combat theaters that you were in. Did you see at that point any leaders or were you yourself really drawing a distinction between things like battlefield courage and moral courage? And you said something earlier about how courage is, is not operating without fear. It's operating with fear. And, and you use things like training to instill confidence and confidence to instill drive. But still, there is such a thing as battlefield courage. Did you see any of that in Panama? I've been blessed to uh, observe a bunch of people in a bunch of different operations that exhibited battlefield courage or physical courage or however you want to define that. Some of, some of which is mixed with moral courage. I mean, I actually differentiate physical battlefield courage into two kind of groups. One I'll call reactive courage. That's you get shot at, you do those things that are required to keep yourself alive and or your unit alive, you know, or protect the guys that are working with you. It's reactive in nature, you know, and that is in a lot of cases tied to, you know, training, 
the inherent kind of reactions of the, the individuals. So that's one. The other I would characterize as more deliberate courage. And so the best example of that would be like a medevac pilot. So a medevac pilot that goes into a hot LZ multiple times, he goes into the LZ, he gets shot at, he picks up casualties, adrenaline's kicked up, all the things. He gets out, goes to relative safety, drops off the casualties, and then returns and does it again and again and again. Each time you go to that well, it takes more of a toll. I'm not saying one courage is better than the other. It's just different. And I have a lot of respect for both, but I particularly respect someone that can go back and forth into that fight and leave relative safety to get back out and do it. And I know we're going to get to your time in Mogadishu, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that deliberate courage once again as a topic. I find it fascinating that courage can be defined by a whole bunch of different things. And the moral courage is interesting too, because I don't know much about the Army evaluation paperwork when you get your your annual evaluations, but in the Marine Corps, they're called fitness reports. And when I first came in, there was actually a section where you filled out that was called moral courage. And it was always marked non-observed unless you were in combat, which I understood at first as a young person because I didn't have an exposure to real moral courage when I was 22 or 23 years old. So to me, that was just one of those things, oh, well, you won't get that filled out until you're in combat. And they've eliminated it from the fitness report. But I, I look back on it, and I think to myself, there's a lot of opportunity for people to show moral courage, and it may not have anything to do with combat. Yeah, I, I well, I, one, I agree. We had, in the Army, as part of the officer efficiency reports, had the same thing. Personally, I think moral courage is absolutely observed outside of combat. That you know, in some cases, has nothing to do with combat. My kind of rule is, you know, it's doing the right thing when nobody's watching. And I think we should be evaluating our leaders on that. One of the most important books for me is called Once an Eagle. It's a book by Antoine Meyer. Nineteen it was written in 1968. It became a really favorite book inside the Rangers. It's a book that I've given to my son-in-law when he went into the army and I've given it to multiple people, but it tracks two leaders. One's uh, Sam Damon and the other's Courtney Massengale. And it tracks them from World War One all the way through the beginnings of Vietnam War. And it's two distinct leadership styles. So Sam Damon is the enlisted guy that has a direct commission in World War One that goes on really promoted over time based off of his battlefield prowess. Where Courtney Massengale is kind of the Machiavellian, connected, conniving guy that is also hugely successful across the same length of time. So it gives you two different paths and both of them, as it related to the rank that they achieved, the positions they had were successful, but they took very different paths to get there. And so I think for young leaders, understanding that those paths exist and where you want to spend most of your time on the path is important. It's not as it's not as ever as black and white, or you're going to be Damon, or you're going to be Massengale, but you're going to be faced with those decision points throughout your career. There's a number of times that we, we get spun up about things that aren't necessarily that important in the big scheme of things. If it gets down to morals and you know legal, moral, and ethical kind of issues, then which path are you going to go down? How long were you in Panama before you left? We weren't there very long. We, we got there, I think, 19th or 20th, depending on December. When, and I think we came back early January, mid-January. So very short. Was that post your company command in the Ranger Regiment or prior to taking command of a company? 
prior to. I was in the process of taking command of a company beforehand. Obviously, for all the right reasons, company commander stayed in place through that. And then as soon as we got back, I took over the company. Do you recall anything coming out of that experience and saying to yourself, I will make sure that my men are ready for X? I don't I don't know that I had that epiphany after Panama as I did after Somalia. So we can, I mean, I, I, I can talk to that a little bit more after Somalia. There, it was kind of a natural extension. It, it validated a lot of the training and the mentality that we're going to do. But, but just cause was a very short, a couple weeks in combat and come back and do a parade. So in reality, to try and take a lot of lessons learned from that and then apply them later on, I'm not convinced would have been that helpful. The reason that question was interesting to me was, well, it was interesting to ask, was because it was only 18 months later that we found ourselves in Saudi Arabia for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Where were you in your career when that happened? Were you still at the Ranger Regiment? Yeah, I was actually commanding a company. I was commanding a company, 375. So our my company initially was selected to do all the train up for the Kuwait embassy hostage rescue. So we did a lot of rehearsals around that, which ultimately did not occur. So I, so I didn't participate in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, although I, I did all the train up and prep for it. I think I left before that or right after that and went back to Korea. But it was then very shortly after that, December of 93 rolled around and you must not have been in Korea anymore. You must have been back at the regiment at some level because you then found yourself in Somalia with the 10th Mountain Division as the Ranger Liaison Officer. I'd gone to Korea, been a three in the DMZ, then I went to CGSC, and then I was selected to come back to the third Ranger Battalion as the battalion liaison officer. You were a major then, right? I was a captain promotable. I actually got promoted while we were in Somalia, which I call my combat promotion. I would call it that too. Yeah, I got promoted on 1 September, I think. Yeah, so I'd just gotten back to the battalion. And the battalion at those days had three field grades. So you had a liaison officer, still does, a liaison officer, an operations officer, and an executive officer, and then and then your battalion commander. I had gotten back. We were out on a training exercise, a very large training exercise, when the decision was made to deploy to Somalia. So my initial job was to go down as the two IC of the Rangers. So as Colonel McKnight was the battalion commander, and I was his second in command. It was a very similar structure to what I had done as a company commander in all the train-up for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So I, a lot of those relationships were still there, and the things that we were doing were very similar. So operationally, it was a natural fit for me to go down and help set all that up. The other two field grade officers stayed back, and then ultimately, when we sent another company over, one of those uh, rolled over with it. So initially, I went down as a 2IC, helped set up all the kind of processes, all that kind of stuff. And then a month and a half into it, it at least became apparent to me that if something went bad, we needed a quick reaction force, which was going to be 10th Mountain. And if we needed to call on them, we really needed a liaison officer. So that's how I ended up being actually a liaison officer to 214 at 10th Mountain in support of Task Force Ranger. So the 3rd Battalion was there in forces of full battalion? Yeah. So Task Force Ranger writ large, all of Task Force Ranger was 450 people. It was capped. That was, so you had about 150 people from 3rd Battalion. You had about 100 Delta operators and you had 
a couple hundred staff and aviation from 160 and a handful of like seals and that kind of stuff. So it was, it was about a company, Bravo company of 375 was kind of the main entity. And then there was a small staff element uh, that was there. But Colonel McKnight was there obviously because he's a pretty well-known character from the book, but it was just the company that was there. They were down at the uh, Mogadishu airport, correct? So where were you with the 10th Mount? Were you up near the embassy? Yeah. So 10th Mountain, 10th Mountain was stationed at, uh, on the, at the UN compound right next to the embassy. You know, we established the task force ranger headquarters down at the airport. So during the, pretty much all of the time at that point, I was spinning up with 10th Mountain and I would basically go out on operations with them. As we were doing operations, I would keep them abreast of what was going on. So we could be postured to do that. And then on the weekends, I would go down to the airport so that I could kind of cross level the guys from Task Force Ranger. Fast forward to October of 1993. Obviously, most everyone knows the story about Black Hawk Down. And I'm not going to get into telling the whole story because you can read books and watch movies on it. But I do want to talk about your participation in it and see if we can surface any moments in leadership that you had, things that started to crystallize as important to you because you then went on to become a general. So at this point, you're a major, you're a liaison officer to the 10th Mountain Division. So you're not in command. There's only one ranger company there. You're not commanding any troops. October of 1993 rolls around. The famous raid starts to take place. Things start going wrong. You are where? Yeah, so I, so I was back at, at the task force ranger compound at the airport because it actually occurred on a weekend. So when the operations started, I, I went into the joint operations center where General Garrison and his staff and kind of command and controlled the operation, largely to make sure I was tracking on the operation and then also to communicate with 10th Mountain, who was you know back at their compound. So that was my location. So the operation, without going into the great detail, you had a rotary wing force and then you had a ground force uh, that went in and they and they were going into uh, Bakara Market, which was a, a really bad spot in town. And they were going, understanding that there was a pretty significant force there. But we had just captured Osmanado, so all the key lieutenants were getting together to sort out what they were going to do. So it was pretty much all the significant leadership for Adid's group. Uh, the raid itself was successful. They got the out, and then the first aircraft got shot down by an RPG. We had a air QRF to go after that. That was uh, Shugart. No, I'm sorry. The, the second aircraft was the one that went down after that, and we didn't have a QRF to go after that. So at that point, Carl McKnight's kind of on the ground with the Rangers. You've got the other leadership's gone. They've already launched the QRF. So uh, General Garrison, and it's in the movie, it just is a different guy. So I, I, was not, I was not captured in any of the scenes in the movie, which is fun. Uh, but he turned to me and said, put together a quick reaction force and get to the second uh, crash site. Which is where Durant was. Correct. Ultimately, where we sent in uh, Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart. Who, for people who are listening, if the names don't sound familiar, they were posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for sacrificing their own lives to go in and, and save the pilot who was still alive uh, in that helicopter, Super 64. They, they inserted and, uh, and were, were killed and overrun. And they're certainly heroes that day, along with uh, Chief Warrant Officer Frank, who, was, who died in Super 64 as well. But everybody remembers Mike Durant, who lived. And so your QR, your quick reaction force, what QRF stands for, was tasked with going in to, to that crash site, correct? That's correct. Although, although QRF is a 
pretty liberal term. I mean, the reality, the reality, it was anybody that could carry a rifle. So I had cooks, I had mechanics, I had couple of squads of rangers that had come back out of Colonel McKnight's group. So we we had a pretty mixed group that was headed out. And, you know, the, the problem, Mogadishu is a very, the, the and you know this because you were there, but the city itself is really interesting because all the roads are straight. There, there are no yards, so all the yards are protected by concrete walls. So in fact, it's not, it's not really like operating a city. It's almost like a big room clearing operation. You know, if you sit on one street and shoot down at you can impact you know to the length of the weapons and when anything happened inside of Mogadishu they basically had their own version of a neighborhood watch group they would pull out a bunch of stuff block the road and cover it with automatic weapons and then shoot anything that that came into it so we had a very small force that was not that had never operated together some of which you know were cooks and mechanics without denigrating them. I mean, it just wasn't a cohesive fighting force. So we ran into a number of uh, roadblocks on the way. And because we didn't have really the force or the capability to fight our way through these roadblocks, we kept bouncing into different roadblocks. And ultimately, we ran into Colonel McKnight's force, which was had been shot up pretty extensively at this point. And the decision was made to bring them back to the airfield, escort them back to the airfield, and then turn and go back out. Linked up with Colonel McKnight's force, brought them back to the airfield, dropped them off, had every intention then of turning and going back out. But in that period of time, 10th Mountain had been alerted and was actually going in to do the QRF. Ultimately, they got repelled, came back to the airfield, and we did another big kind of bringing everybody together, brought the Malaysians in for the vehicles, coordinated with the Pakistanis for tank support and then we went back out the last time third time for us out to uh police up the two crash sites and that was i think probably the sun was just coming up when we just started at two o'clock in the afternoon and the sun was coming up when we were pulling off of the objective the next morning there's a couple things worth mentioning in there i just want to give some context to what you just said for listeners because you had one ranger company there who was out on the mission and captain Steele, i believe was his name the rangers that fast roped in where uh, pfc blackburn was hurt kind of started the evacuation changing changing the co's colonel mcknight's mission from picking up the assault force and picking up the prisoners to an evacuation and everybody remembers in the movie colonel mcknight was played by tom sizemore driving in the humvees and you're right about the neighborhood watch and specifically bakar arms because when i was in somalia we went in and did a raid on bakar arms so i'm familiar with the geometry of that as well but a couple of the parts of the story that, that i just want to make sure we come back to is that when colonel mcknight's convoy was out there doing this there was also part of that convoy that split off it was told to go to to the original crash site super six one i think with chief warrant officer wolcott chief warrant officer braley was the other pilot's name because there were in fact some survivors from that crash i think the crew chiefs and there were also some operators who were snipers in that crash as well and that's when sergeant strucker came back with those wounded soldiers and had a kia himself a sergeant that was in his vehicle but people who see the movie will remember the scene but they come back with the Humvees and they need to be washed out because they're going to go back out and they're going to try to save some more people. What's not seen in the movie was what you said to Sergeant Strucker. And I'm bringing this back because you talked about that deliberate courage. And there was a moment of deliberate courage 
that you witnessed with Sergeant Strucker when you said to him something along the lines of, any idiot can go into a hot zone. It takes courage and leadership to go back a second time. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that moment, because that is one of those moments when you must have fully realized the gravity of your influence and your responsibility. As a young major talking to a sergeant who's about to go back out into something he doesn't want to do. Yeah, I think the uh, the reality is, so Jeff had come back, like said, with Dominic Pillow, was his gunner that had gotten shot, and was in the process of cleaning the vehicles up when we were getting ready to go back out. And uh, obviously, he had to process, you know, not just watching his gunner get killed, but cleaning up the vehicle to regroup and to getting back out. I don't know we didn't talk courage or any of that. All, all I really did was remind him that there was Rangers still out there and we had to get back out and get them. And, and he knew that. I mean, he was a really, really interesting guy. Jeff kind of found religion during the night of the third and fourth, became a chaplain, and years later was a battalion chaplain for me when I was the Ranger Regimental Commander. So Yeah, I was going to ask you that because he, he was also in Panama too. I don't know if he served with them in Panama or if he was off in a smaller unit. He was, I think, an RRD there in Panama. But I, I had known him long before that and long after. He's a great, great man, great, great soldier. I think that story about you know him displaying the deliberate courage. Well, there was a yes, he he did, and there was a bunch there was a bunch of them. And I will tell you, there was other guys that didn't go out or didn't go out multiple times. There were, you know, so you're going to see that on the, in the battlefield and, and people are making decisions that they got to live with for the rest of their life. And some of them frankly regret the decisions they made. You went back out too. Yeah. I, I went out multiple times. I, you know, it was interesting. I, I thought, you know, we went out the first time it was pretty, you know, it just was a natural and then we were immediately prepping to go back out. So you're just into activities. But then we had a long period of time where we were kind of coordinating. I mean, it was very much, I mean, we brought the Malaysians, 10th Mountain, us, the Pakistanis. There was a whole bunch of people involved in trying to come up with a plan that was simple enough that we could all kind of operate on to, to go back out. So that took a lot more time than than you would think. Just It was just hard to communicate it. So there was a lot of time in between that. I thought at some point, and I talked with General Garrison about this separately afterwards, I thought there was a point in time that I thought we were at risk of losing the whole force. Um, so we're not, you know, it wasn't, it really wasn't as much thinking about it individually or even small from a small unit standpoint. Where I sat, I thought we ran the risk of losing the whole, whole force. He had a different view. He, you know, he said, from his perspective, once we got the resupply, that we were fine because he, because he was looking at a different level and had lined up things, frankly, that I did not have visibility on at the time. He was a general at the time, correct? He was. So this is you as a major seeing a general making battlefield decisions that must have been pretty impactful. So it's interesting. He's a not a well known. You know, there was a lot of publicity around the time, but you know, he retired pretty soon after. Actually, he retired the same day a deed was killed, which is, um, there may be some irony in there, but a tremendous leader and did a, a tremendous amount for special operations. And I think he, he became a, not necessarily a mentor because I didn't have that much interaction, but the interaction I had with him was insightful. So years later, he had asked me to come down. It was right around Christmas 
and basically, and I didn't know what the reason was. And they sat down and said, ask me any question uh, you have about Somalia. I'm going to, I'm about to retire and you're going to stay on active duty and you, you should have all the kind of understanding, at least from what I saw. So we spent, I don't know, three hours in his office talking with the opportunity as, and I was still, I think I still was a major or very young Lieutenant Colonel, uh, the ability to talk to, you know, somebody and see it from their perspective, which was very different than the perspective I had. So what did you ask him? Uh, there's well, one of them was, you know, I kind of relayed my views about, you know, that I thought that I thought we were at risk of losing force. We talked about some of the, I wanted to know how he saw the battlefield, why he made some decisions that he made. It, it was more trying to see the, the battle from his perspective and the decision and what information he had to make the decisions that he made as he went through the process. I've got to imagine I'm going to put myself in the, in the position of being a major, watching a combat situation unfold and being privy to the decision-making on the spot of a general. What is it that you learned about how the course of a battle can be so impacted by losing momentum? And what sort of advice do you have to a leader who's listening now about when you sense yourself losing that momentum, that can almost accelerate exponentially in the wrong direction. How do you turn that around? Because to your point about risk, the risk of losing the force, you must have sensed a change in momentum to the negative. How do you turn something like that around in the face of such adversity? Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. You know, it's, it's interesting because that is one of the specific things I talk uh, with General Garrison about. And the quote that he, or the, the response he gave me then resonated with me. And it actually is, has been something that I've kind of carried with and seen different, different versions of it through my career, both in the military and in, 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 in business. The problem with momentum is it's kind of really hard to define, but you know, you know when you got it and you know when you lose it. The difference between football or basketball or some of the sports we watch to where we can see that in combat is if you lose momentum in combat, you bleed to get it back. So the way that we regained momentum in Somalia was we get, there was a lot of guys that got hurt in the process, both on our side and on their side. And that was a tactical operation. I would argue that Iraq was a strategic loss of momentum and the cost was geometric because of the size. The same thing applies in business. So when a business loses momentum, you bleed cash to get it back. And, and so how do you stop it? Well, that you, you stop it through prevention, not reaction. I mean, the reality is if, if you, I remember going through all the courses and, and always having to assign a reserve and put a big reserve back there. And like a lot of people, it was like, well, that's just a waste of combat power. We don't need to have that much in reserve. You know, that'll never happen. We don't need to focus on contingencies because we're really smart. We have got a good plan and we got technology and whatever. The older I got, and the more, and particularly after Somalia, one of the things I was always focused on, um, and any organization I was involved was focused on, was how do you posture yourself to ensure that you don't lose momentum? Then it was reserve. It was what are the contingencies? Because the reality is, it wasn't like we didn't think about that. Yeah, we had smart people. We had a great plan contingency for when the first aircraft went down, and we reacted to that. 
we didn't we didn't have a plan necessarily or the capacity when the second aircraft in this case i would argue and that people have disagreed with me but from my perspective this was more we did not the conditions on the ground changed significantly and our tactics techniques and procedures did not adapt to the changing conditions as fast as they could which sounds you know really negative there's only so much you can do it's like how do, how can you use the same routes why'd you go during the day all, all those questions were rehashed early on in the process well the bottom line is we were at the airport we were either going to go left right or up the middle out of the airport and we were always going to come back to the airport except for after third and fourth we went back to Pakistani stadium. Frankly, we flew demonstration flights and we did all that kind of stuff, but it was just too small of an area and you weren't going to deceive anybody. They knew you were going to come in and go out. Some of it was strategic. We should have had AC-130s. We asked for AC-130s. They weren't there. We should have had armored vehicles. We didn't have armored vehicles. So there was those kind of reasons. But at our level, I think there was some other stuff that we could have done from a planning standpoint to have better contingency. I look back on my experience going to school and like you said, coming up with a plan, one force in reserve, there was a QRF contingency. There just wasn't two. And so at some point you you can completely take a training exercise and just crush it down to can't do it because I mean, at some point you've got to train, but it's interesting that it was the training and your experience and the moments that you had leading up to that point where you were able to creatively come up with a solution of taking a bunch of cooks, bakers, and candlestick makers, putting them into a convoy and going to a crash site and you know, trying to rescue people and a lot of bravery in there. We had a very unique group of cooks. So I don't want to <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, right. Integrate our, our cooks. Uh, Rangers have always had really exceptional cooks. It actually goes all the way back to Darby. But yeah, I don't I don't want to sound like there was a whole lot of planning that there really wasn't. It's like if you had a gun, get in the vehicle, we'll sort it out. We'll slide down the road and deal with it. I think, you know, when I look back at Somalia, there the the individual courage and bravery of all the people that operated, and I and I want to include Tenth Mountain and and the Rangers and our coalition uh, partners that came in on the end are what saved it. So we took the we put that force right at the edge from a planning standpoint. Our reserve became the individual valor and courage of those participants. That's what got us out of there without losing the whole force. And that's not something you should ever plan on. It's great. The history of all of our military services are just so complete with stories of your term, the deliberate bravery, the battlefield bravery, courage, battlefield courage, deliberate courage. Uh, it's just great to to hear stories about the success and the sacrifice of the people there. You know, there was 19 KIA, 73 wounded in action, seven silver stars, a bunch of bronze stars, a bunch of purple hearts. I am willing to be wrong about this, but I don't know if we had any battle leading up to that where that many people were killed in inside of a couple days. I don't think Grenada lost that many people. I don't think that many people were lost in Panama. I think, you know, the Marine barracks, obviously a little bit of a different situation. I mean, up to that point, in such a short period of time, in an environment that, frankly, I don't think we had much combat experience in, an urban environment without some of the equipment that you were talking about, where the enemy was hiding in plain sight for the first time, I you know, really, maybe since Vietnam. I think that it was a very difficult situation, and it's a testament to the bravery and the leadership of everybody in that, in that unit on that day. You know, there's, if you go on Wikipedia, you can read some of the Silver Star citations. There's 
seven of them listed, one's missing. Um, it's yours. <laughs> you were awarded the, the silver star for that day for at great risk to yourself going in and bringing that relief convoy to the crash site, fighting there and staying there throughout the night to make sure everybody was accounted for and uh, not listed on Wikipedia. Major James Nixon's silver star is, is not on there. So I just want to make sure I recognize that. I've never looked at it on Wikipedia, so I didn't know if it was on there or not. That's interesting. It was a hell of a day. And it must have had a big impact on you. It must have been a collection of crystallizing moments because you were a major, but you went on to have career that went on longer than you had been in up to that point. And I'm wondering if as you went on to what I assume would have been a battalion command next, what's that one thing that you walked away from Mogadishu with saying, this is imprinted on my leadership style and I will never compromise on this ever? Yeah, there was a couple of things. It was interesting. I, I actually left. I didn't go directly from there in the battalion command. I went from there to JSOC and spent three years there and then then went into battalion command, which is probably why none of my stuff was listed back then. Was that operationally or were you staff or maybe both? Yeah, let's just say both. The organization is much different then than it is now. I was not well known at that point in time. Yeah, I think there was a number of things. Before I get into those, I would also highlight that Somalia was probably, at least from my perspective, kind of the first where you saw the impact of the 24-hour news cycle and the information ops tied to that and the, and the effect both internally and externally around that. Because I would tell you that after the third and the fourth, when we were back at the headquarters, I mean, it was like, yeah, this is the, that, that was a tough fight. Let's get kitted up and go out and find you know, Mike Durant and get it back. So there wasn't a lot. I mean, it it was pretty straightforward and morale was pretty high. There's a couple of things that happened after that. We actually took mortars in the airport. A bunch of senior leaders got wounded on the 6th and we lost uh, another one of the operators on the 6th. And you watch 24-hour coverage of your friends being dragged through the streets by the enemy and then all the talking heads related to that. So I mean, there there was some, obviously, during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, but it was very controlled and very limited. So I, to me, that really was, we lost the tactical fight. We really didn't lose. We lost the information war around Somalia. That would come back to really impact me as we were getting ready to do the invasion of Iraq and the roles I had back then. The information part. Yeah, the information part and how you executed that. And that, that became kind of a focus for me uh, later in my career in the, in the roles that I had. But the immediate lessons learned from Somalia were a couple of things. One, one, we've already talked about, that was how do you train people not, to not lose momentum at the, at the tactical level? How do you evaluate, how do you evaluate leaders during training to differentiate the guys that are going to do well or not not do well in that environment. But it, it became kind of codified. The lessons learned from Somalia translated into, for the Rangers, into what was called the Big Four. And it was all about uh, marksmanship or the ability to acquire, discriminate, eliminate targets at the length of your optics day or night. Some of these are my words now after the fact, but it started off as marksmanship and, and, and we continue to refine it over time. And Stan McChrystal is the one that brought it back to the Rangers, but they were lessons learned from Somalia. So marksmanship, uh, medical training, because what happens, we got a lot of the medics get, get killed. So we completely changed the way we approach medical training from an individual standpoint to an organizational standpoint. The other was physical and mental hardness. 
So how do how do you because again we had people frankly that quit for whatever reason and then lastly it was small unit drills so how how do you operate in an urban environment at night as as a small unit so th- that became the foundation you know those lessons learned became the foundation for the big four which is what Stan used to drive I would say the first big kind of transformation inside the rangers and rethink that the way that we did training and i think that led to a whole bunch of stuff one of the big four that you mentioned was the physical mental hardness because you had some people quitting but that was probably few and far between that whole the the battle of mogadishu on that day in october those days in october that part of your ranger creed and i may get this a little bit wrong but you know never fail your comrades there's something in there about you'll never fail your comrades i don't know the whole ranger creed but i know parts of it that lived and you had mentioned earlier what was the big difference between coming from big army into the ranger regiment was that creed you said it every single day and how everybody believed it. And even when there were certain people who did quit, everybody believed and I shall never fail my comrades. And somebody came up with the big four to address. That must have been a moment, maybe more for General McChrystal, but for you as well, it sounds like. Oh, it was, yeah, it was a crystallizing moment for me. You know, we refined those lessons learned afterwards. I think for me, it, it changed the way that I approached training. It changed the way I approached evaluation of talent. It definitely changed the way I approached combat operations for the rest of my career. When was your next combat deployment? Was it prior to or after being a battalion commander in the Ranger Regiment? I was in Bosnia for a year, but that, that I mean, quasi, that really wasn't a shooting conflict. Uh, the, next, the next time I was in combat was as a was a battalion commander in Korea in the demilitarized zone, and then I commanded 3rd Battalion, and I turned over 3rd Battalion right before 9-11. So I was in combat. I was the J-3 for JSOC from 02 to 2003, so I was in Afghanistan, and then we did all the planning and the initial invasion into Iraq. Most of my time then was as as the RCO. Right. So the RCO, that's for people listening, that's the Ranger Regimental Commanders, you call the RCO. That was a regimental command. What year did you take over the Ranger Regiment? And what were some of the things that you walked into that thinking, okay, here is my focus. Here are the things that I've just spent 25 years, I'm guessing at this point, 25 years of lessons that I've learned from Panama, Somalia, Bosnia, watching combat, being in JSOC, having a battalion command. And now you're coming in as a regimental commander. Tell me about what you were thinking at the time about focus and the gravity of that situation being a Rager regimental CO. Um, what was interesting about it was I had been the three at JSOC for the year preceding taking over the command. So I knew I was at the war college and found out I was going to be selected for command and did a year as the JSOC three while. We were waiting for the do the transition with Joe Botel. And during that period of time I I had spent most, you know, the first part of it in Afghanistan with the Rangers as one of our subordinate units and the entire joint task force. And then I spent the next the last part of that doing the training or the planning and then execution of the initial invasion into Iraq. So I had seen really where the regiment was at. I had a pretty unique view on the joint force and what the regiment's strengths and weaknesses were as it related to the rest of the force and where 
the global war on terror was going. And it was apparent to me that to be uh, relevant as we continue in the global war on terror, that we had to transform a lot of the things inside the regiment. On one hand, we had a, I was the first Ranger Regimental Commander to the entire time I was there to have a portion of the regiment in combat. So Joe Votel had mo most of the time that he was there, but for me and then for every RCO after me, and told just recently, I think they still have got a continuous presence in combat operations. So it was fight fight the fight at the same time we had to transform, transform the regiment. We had to take a unit that largely did short duration operations out of aircraft, be they fixed or rotary wing, with intelligence provided by somebody else to a unit that did at a very large scale, like battalion minus and above, to a unit that did small scale operations like platoon company out of vehicles continuously for a long duration. I never thought it would be this long with intelligence that we provided. So that was the overall thesis. And then how do you, how do you transform from where we're at, from an organizational standpoint, from an equipment standpoint, from a training standpoint, how do you transition from that to the, what the force should be? That was kind of the vision and what we started. And I would emphasize that I just started it. And then there was a series of commanders that followed after me that continued to refine that. And to the point that the Ranger Regiment is you know, far past what I ever uh, assumed it could become back then. But you said that kind of interestingly, you went from big units that operated out of aircraft with intel from others into smaller units that worked out of vehicles and supplying their own intelligence. Is that where the Ranger Regiment is now? And the answer to that is going to drive my next question. So Yes, and much more. I think they're well past that. I mean, so the... We had to, at the core level, we had to transition from being what was largely considered the most disciplined unit in the Army to what I wanted, which is the most self-disciplined unit. Doesn't sound like much. You reach self-discipline through an environment of discipline. That changes what you can do, how you do it. I mean, it's a fundamental change. Uh, and they've just continued. They've continued down that path. So they're much, they're relevant. They've continued to remain relevant throughout that period of time, which I think was the, at least for me, that was the key back then was how we remain relevant in this fight. Uh, and, and Rangers have always kind of bridged between special operations and the conventional force. They've always been the bridge between the two which I think is a strength of the regiment. So how do you continue that? It's very similar to how the Marine Corps is always talking about relevance. Uh, as you know, we're going through a transformation ourselves right now, which is very interesting, which is why I asked the question about, you know, moving from the big units with the planes with the intel provided by others into the smaller unit, running out of vehicles and everything. But then you went on to say something that was really interesting that I just, I want to ask another question about where you said you wanted to create a unit that executed on self-discipline out of its discipline. Can you give me an example of what you meant by that? At its core level, it was manifested in in the haircut policy, which I talk about. One of the first things we changed, but but the the standard for the Rangers was no hair on the side of your head and less than an inch on top, called the high and tight, and that was done every Sunday. So Monday morning you were striped, which I mean it's pretty straightforward to do that. The problem is when I took over, there was all all kinds of different haircuts and 
it was a stupid looking haircut anyway and it really didn't it there was nothing disciplined about it because it was just easy you mean the the traditional haircut of the nothing on the sides one inch on the top yeah it doesn't require any leadership because it's just simplistic so it's like you know checking real hair and whether they meet whatever standards you establish you know that requires leaders to actually do something we didn't have that i I mean i changed it largely because it was the most visible uh thing inside of the regiment that i could communicate to the rangers that i was serious about transformation you transformed the haircut policy back to the way it was with the strict tie and tight or are you saying that you got away from it no i got away from it how was that taken (laughs) because in the marine corps we like to joke about the stupid little rules that people cling to, like don't put your hands in your pockets or don't roll your sleeves up a little bit at the cuff or how far you blouse your boots up and down. We have the same challenges. So I'm, I'm curious because that is a step away from traditional discipline. That's a step away from the things that are held sacred in a community with a creed <laughs> that recites it every day at PT and goes on eight mile runs. Yeah, that's the interesting part because it's a step away from discipline towards self-discipline. I'd love to hear you talk some more about that. It doesn't require any self-discipline to get your hair cut in a high and tight every Sunday night. I mean, that's pretty black and white, straightforward. doesn't require any thought. It doesn't require any real leader involvement other than to glance at it as you're walking by. But, I mean, that was the apparent part. So I'll give you a tactical or combat example. If a sergeant told a ranger to get down here and lay covering fire, then a ranger in those days, and I'm overstating this, was very disciplined and would lay down in the middle of a road with no cover to lay down covering fire. Why? Because the sergeant told him to lay down fire from there. In reality, what the sergeant really wanted the ranger to do was get down, find cover, and lay down fire. And that's the difference between discipline and self-discipline. That's the difference between kind of the, the maturity you were trying to drive. So that you're not so regimented. I mean, you have to have the core of discipline, but you've got to have it in a, in a way that is going to allow you to operate in the uncertainty of combat because it's never going to be as simple as it is on the parade field. Which you had learned several times over a 25-year career leading up to this point as a regimental CO. Right, and if, and if you go back to... Somalia, there was young rangers that got hurt, frankly, because they were laying down where they were told to lay down instead of moving three feet and getting behind cover and doing the exact same thing they were supposed to do. But they were told to lay down there. And so we had taken it to the extreme, just like we took the haircut to the extreme. I think it's interesting, and I'm leading into some question that's burning right now, but it's that thing about thinking. In the military, we do such a great job. Well, we put a lot of emphasis on physical conditioning, almost to the point where your physical conditioning is deemed to be more important and more indicative of your ability as a leader. So forget the fact that you could be a knuckle dragger or a crayon eater. If you ran a 300 physical fitness test, that was fantastic leadership. And where I wonder if we're going to transform into encouraging people to condition their minds as much as we condition our bodies, because what you're talking about is going to require thought and creativity. And as you were talking before about how you're going to take the unit into a smaller thing, I look at what the Marine Corps is doing with their restructuring and their potential employment in the Pacific Island chains, where small units are led by a young officer, probably 75 people with anti-ship missiles in a low electronic signature environment, maybe degraded communications. 
maybe no communications, maybe no GPS, and you're out there by yourself with an anti-ship missile with nothing to do except rely on your understanding of the, the intent and do what you're supposed to do. How are we going to take those young leaders? And, and I'm interested in, in your opinion on this. How do we create those young leaders now out of a cadre of existing leaders that have spent the past two decades laying down in the middle of the street because that's where they were told to do? Disciplined, yeah, but not enough self-discipline to really be a thinker. Where's that creative lab going to be that creates that next generation of leaders? You know, I, I can't comment directly on the Marine Corps, but so I'll, I'll kind of focus more on the Army. I, I, I think a lot of the that leadership has been there. Now, whether run them off or not is another story. I mean, we've had, you know, I, I used to say, and it didn't endear me with some of my peers, but when I was a general officer, it's like there was a lot of talk about transforming the army. And it's like, look, we're not, we're the bridge to the, to the guys that are going to transform the army. The guys that have commanded at the company battalion brigade level, they're the guys that are going to, the guys and gals are going to trans, transform the army because they've seen it, you know, not us. And, and you're just starting to see that group of leaders get into the positions that they can actually influence uh, influence the army as they move forward. But at its core, a lot of a lot of it's about training. A lot of it's about about how we select officers. But you know, I don't want to be the angry guy sitting on the porch shaking his fist at the world kind of deal. Uh, but it's hard, and and institutions generally look to do the simpler things. And unfortunately, when institution is downsized and what becomes easy is, okay, we've got to go from this size to that size. How are we going to cut the force? Well, you know, who's overweight? Who has a DUI? Who has an Article 15? Who can't pass a PT test? They're first to go. They may be the smartest guys that you've ever seen, but from a standpoint of it's just easy at that point to downsize the force. I think you've got to look for opportunities, visionaries like Abrams, like what he did with the Rangers. You got to create uh, opportunities for organizations, units, and leaders to itself. So how do you identify that talent early on and create? My, my view of being a commander was pretty simplistic. I thought one, you know, my first priority was to create the environment for others to itself. And there's a whole bunch that goes into that. But First and foremost, create that environment, create the cocoon. At the institution level, you can't do it across the institution. So how are you going to create pockets of that throughout the institution? Second is manage crisis. How are, how are you using your capabilities to manage crisis? And then third was leave it better than you got it. That was it, because we're just renting it. So somebody else is coming. That's no, Nobody's really asking me to comment on where the Army is at these days. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have the, a clue because I'm not there. I'm not plugged into it. I mean, I can talk about what we did, where I was at, and why we did it. The, the guys there are dealing with the environment that they're in. I, di- I just hope that they, to your point, can create these opportunities itself. What normally happens when we send people out alone and unafraid is we give them all the responsibility, but the authority doesn't come with it. We could do a whole another two-hour podcast on that, and it would be outside the realm of moments and leadership. But you know, I'll, I'll bring it back to that topic because 
and I'm, I'm going to reintroduce the whole idea of the moral courage. We're going to see a whole new generation of leaders that are going to require a lot of moral courage to look at their bosses and say, that way of doing business won't work with our new mission. We're going to see a generation of young leaders, some of them are coming in right now, that are going to be required to really speak their mind and be smart and understand things. But after over 30 years of experience that you had and all of your time in the Ranger Regiment in, in combat, what sort of advice do you have to somebody who's going to have to display some some moral courage and stick up for something that they know is right or needs to be done in the face of some leadership adversity? That's a tough and broad question. I, I think, uh, well, let me give you an example. So from when I was still on active duty, I think when I was deputy commander at Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, we had guys rotating back from the States and they, and, or from Iraq or Afghanistan. We had them both locations. And then they would get back to Schofield Barracks. And then suddenly there in Iraq or Afghanistan, they had wide latitude, lots of authority, lots of freedom uh, to operate as a you know battalion, company, pl- platoon leader, squad leader. And then they get back into the in- institution and suddenly you can't go to the range without having you know, guys with paddles and bullhorns and, and, and now you're taking these guys that you've given this huge latitude in combat and suddenly you're in training and you put a bunch of constraints on them. First and foremost is the communication channel so that you know about things like that. And then, you know, where are you willing to accept risk and go, well, look, we're not going to, you know, yes, that's the way that we used to do it, but we're not doing that anymore. And if a company commander signs for a range, he owns it and he doesn't need a DA civilian to come in and, you know, supervise some somebody that we've already, President of the United States has reposed special trust and confidence. I agree with that. I think some of the restrictions that are in place during training need to be lifted in order to create that realistic training that keeps people alive in combat. What happens is somebody gets hurt and then suddenly you have the policy letter. I used to call the policy letter books the trail of tears because you could see all the all the incidents that occur over time and then quick fix that now gets added to the rest and you end up with a lot of scar tissue. When you got to the rank of Colonel Regimental Commander in general, how did you teach your young leaders to understand how to think when you weren't around to guide them? How did you link your mind to others as a 30-year now veteran with all this experience to try to shape the leadership traits of the young officers that were way down your chain of command, but important to the overall mission? Some of it is thinking about it in scale. So when you're a platoon leader and you've got 30 or 40 guys, you know everything about this. 30, 40 guys. When you're a company commander, it's kind of the rule of 150. So you're a company commander and you you know the people, you know, I mean, you, you really understand that. Battalion commander, knowing 800 people with the amount of turnover you've got is different. So that's the first stage that you are transitioning from kind of direct leadership to indirect leadership by, with, and through others. As a regimental commander, it's completely different. And you could, there's an old, chart that starts with a triangle that if the triangle is the organization and the circle is the leader you know if you're a squad that circles inside the squad if you're a company commander it's 90 percent focused on the triangle if you're a battalion commander i've seen successful battalion commanders either 60 40 or 40 60 they could be 60 percent external focused and 40 percent internal or 40 percent internal and 60 percent 
external. Somewhere in that range is the band of excellence. As a regimental commander, most of your focus is external. As the ranger regimental commander, even more of your focus is external because you're you're trying to understand the impacts on the organization and either shape those impacts and or mitigate them before they hit the organization. So if you're looking in, you're not going to be successful. That's a long diatribe to set up the answer to your question, which is a regimental commander. My ability to impact you know, young officers was pretty marginal. It was by the policies I set up. It was by what I put out. You know, I, I tried to speak at as many of the initial indoctrination courses because we had an assessment program. So once they got through the assessment program, I would talk through, you know, what my policies were and what my priority was and, and, and then try and have a dialogue with them. But it was largely by, with, and through others. So for the entire time I was a regimental commander, I would fly into Iraq, spend about two weeks going around to, to visit my units who were actually working for somebody else. And then I would fly into Afghanistan to command a joint force for three months that was spread all over Afghanistan. Then I would fly back to Iraq and do the two-week circus. And then I would fly back to the States to see the training that was going on in the States, swing by and see my wife for a couple of weeks, and then I would go back and do it again. That's what I did the whole time. So we were in at any given time somewhere between 14 to 20 locations. So typically I would go in and, and you got to remember that we were in the process of trying to transform the regiment at the same time. So I had a lot of talking points kind of tied around that outside of just the normal leadership, what they were doing, all that, spending time uh, with guys in the field. So in the best of all worlds, you hope that it was at night and it was bad conditions and, you know, because you got one visit at night when it's raining is worth 10 visits in the day when it's sunny. Yeah, sure is. Uh, so you share a little hardship and share a little risk. So I would do touch points. My regimental sergeant major, my senior enlisted advisor for the Rangers, Greg Birch, would go and st- spend extended periods of time with them. We were very seldom in the same place over the course of two years. One of the finest soldiers that I know. His goal was to spend a week in combat with every platoon in the regiment, which he accomplished over a two-year period, which is I still is unfathomable to me. So he was spent extended periods of time, and then we lashed all that up with the VTCs, and we did a lot of communication that way. I mean, that's a very long answer to your question, but it was largely to impact leaders writ large and specifically junior leaders as a regimental commander it was much more about enabling their activities and leading through others by with and through others and ultimately kind of setting whatever example you know that they're going to see from you which are very snapshots the other thing i would say is the farther you go up the more positive you have to be that's an interesting statement, yeah. And so one of the RCOs that I worked for when I was a captain communicated that to me later on. Because the reality is you're not going to see guys very often. So if, if I saw you once and chewed you out for whatever uniform infraction or whatever, and then a month later I saw you again and chewed you out, then the next month when I swung by, you're going to find a reason not to see me, much less communicate with me. I think directly you had to be much more positive. I don't mean that in a... 
in a not authentic way. I mean, you still have to be authentic, but but I think generally you have to be more positive. And then for those improvements that you needed to see occur, unless it was egregious, but for those improvements, you're really working by with or through somebody else. So it's you're positive kind of writ large, and then you bring the battalion commander or one of the field grades back who has a more of a personal relationship with you, and you go, hey, man, this is, this is not going to work. You guys got to sort this out. But, you know, you can, you can take what you just said and really extrapolate a leadership trait for younger leaders to adopt. You said the farther out you go, the more positive you have to be because if you see a lieutenant one time and you chew his ass and you never see him again, that that's the indelible mark that you left. And I'm I'm taking a little bit more of an extreme that you just said for the sake of brevity, but oh no, it's true. And it'll come and it, it'll come back to visit you years later. I mean, I've I've had people tell me, frankly, you gave me the 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 ass chewing of a lifetime. <laughs> you gave me the biggest ass chewing that I ever got, and I had no idea what they were talking about. And he goes, I deserved it, but it was classic. I mean, you have to be really careful with that, and you have to be really careful with the questions you ask the more senior you get. Because you ask a question, you're generating a lot of activity. That's some great insight. You know, looking back to my time, you know, as a lieutenant and a captain, and I think to myself, geez, what what could I have done better? And you just you just you just cemented it. You said the farther out the go, you more positive you have to be. I I would reverse that and say, take every opportunity you have to be positive when you're younger and you're seeing those people every single day. Because the indelible mark that you can have on them as a positive leader could carry on for literally two generations of soldiers, Marines, airmen, sailors. Because somebody that you make an indelible mark on could become the sergeant major of the Ranger Regiment and could be imprinting his leadership traits and principles on a young PFC that could stay in for another 30 years and become a sergeant major. So legacies can really live on, and you probably have more of an opportunity to do it as a young leader than you do as a general. So maybe there's a leadership lesson to be learned there about trying to impart as much positivity on people as possible at a time where you just came into the military and maybe your only exposure you've had up until that point is just being screamed at nonstop, either through boot camp or follow on training or officer candidate school or the Naval Academy or West Point or whatever it is. If we get indoctrinated into the ass chewing and the, the yelling, it can very easily become part of our leadership personality at the exact wrong time in your career when you should be very positive, positively, of course, holding people accountable to exacting standards is, is a different story. But being a positive leader, I think can really, that may be a great piece of advice to pass on to a young leader who's listening right now is focus on your positivity with the men and women that you're leading on an everyday basis. You can be positive and you can maintain standards. Those aren't mutually exclusive. Exactly. Just, just like you can be a yeller and a screamer and not maintain standard. And quite frankly, yellers and screamers normally, usually, in my experience, don't do particularly well when it gets dicey. So I'm not sure that's the model I would espouse to go towards because largely when bullets are flying, people are looking for kind of calm, not hair on fire. I agree. Even as a second lieutenant, if you're yelling at anybody, probably not doing your job very well. That's somebody else's job. And don't be the yeller. In your time as a regimental commander, the Pat Tillman tragedy happened. I'm wondering if there are some leadership lessons that you can share with people who are listening, young leaders, young aspiring NCOs, because you made the comment about the farther away you are, the more you externally focused. And then all of a sudden, this micro thing happens. And the question isn't posed to relive the story. The question is posed to see if there's some insight that you can share with people based on that experience and everything that happened. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Pat's death was a tragedy. And 
the investigations, there was multiple investigations after the fact, were also a tragedy. I mean, the way it was conducted over, there was about seven investigations over a three-year period that impacted a lot of, a lot of people. Unfortunately, it was uh, what happened on the ground. I mean, I, there's been fratricide in pretty much every, well, every conflict I've been involved with, there's, you know, there's been fratricide, uh, seen it or been around it. Uh, the reality is there's no friendly and fire inside of the range of the weapons. And Afghanistan is a very confusing, complicated place. You know, what's interesting is the regimental sergeant major was in the convoy when that occurred. So I, I knew fairly early on that there was an issue because he called me that night and said it's the most confusing firefight that he had been in. Uh, and we alerted the chain of command around that. You know, because Pat was very famous and because there were, from the football to the political connections, there was going to, there was a lot of that. You knew it was going to be a very complicated kind of investigation going to move forward. So one of the things that we did was, because you're trying to balance we're still fighting. We still have combat operations ongoing. You're trying to balance figuring out what happened because we didn't really know exactly what happened. We just knew it was an issue. So my early on, I got the leaders together and said, all right, we're going to be faced with a lot of decisions as we go through this process. So at every decision, here's the decision criteria that I want you to use. First, we're going to do, we're going to do what's legal, moral, and ethical. That's the first thing. Is it legal, moral, ethical? Then we're going to do what's right for the family. And thirdly, we're going to do what's right for the regiment and by that, the extended army. And so at each decision point, that's the criteria that I want you to go through. What's, what's legal, moral, ethical? What's the right thing for the Tillman family? What's the right thing for the unit of the army? I don't know that that fundamentally helped the process as we went through it. But I will tell you, after living through the amount of investigations and the press and all of that kind of stuff afterwards, it helped me personally because I knew, regardless of what was said, printed, done, any of that, I knew the the process that we had applied to it and I knew how we approached it. And so I had no issue looking at myself in the mirror then or now. That's what I would encourage leader. And it doesn't, I mean, it, this is... This was a incredibly complicated for a whole variety of reasons. But the reality is crisis doesn't feel any different if it's smaller. If you're in a vat of oil, it doesn't matter whether it's the size of the ocean or a 55-gallon drum. It still feels like a vat of oil. Learning, learning how to deal with crisis, you learn at the lower levels, and it applies at the strategic level. So I think clearly up front, you know, it gets back to your other question, what Moral courage is largely around, okay, we're going to define the decision-making criteria up front. We lump legal, moral, and ethical, but there are three distinct things that overlap. Those three things. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that's... It does. I think, you know, what I wrote down that I think is really something that kind of conclude on a little bit or start to wrap up with is learn how to deal with crisis. Because I think as a leader, I'm going to go back to what we were just talking about. Like if you're the yeller and the screamer, you're probably not the guy that's making great decisions when bullets are flying or something's going wrong or anything. Learn how to deal with crisis. Be a level-headed person. Think through things. Make good decisions. 
make fast decisions, train yourself to do those sorts of things and focus on finding solutions to problems rather than compounding them. Yeah, no, I think those are all good. I, I think the, uh, you know, it's interesting because you can do it at multiple levels. I mean, at, at simple level, it's, to, you know, do only those things that only you can do. And I used to use this when I was talking to young leaders when I was in the Rangers. I'd say, okay, you got two training exercises going on at the same time. One is a uh, room clearing operation and the other, which is live fire, and for the viewers is, is, a, is inherently dangerous because you're shooting live bullets inside an urban environment. And the other is a blank fire force on force operation. You're the company commander or the battalion commander and you can only be one place, which one are you going to be at? Vast majority will say, I'm going to be at the, the Mount training site. And you go, well, why are you going to be at the Mount training site? Well, that because that's the most dangerous and I should be where it's most dangerous. But the reality is you're no value added because it's not really your training. The train That type of training is done by, by non-commissioned officers. And most of the officers even if they are good at it, shouldn't be doing it. The guys that should be doing that training are non-commissioned officers. Where when you're doing force on force at the platoon level, the company commander is the only guy that can evaluate the platoon leader's actions. You know, the, he's the first guy in the chain that can evaluate the platoon leader's actions. Either him or the battalion commander are evaluating his actions, his decisions, whether he commits the QRF, whether he pulls off the objective. Nobody else can do that. Now you're starting to train how you think about, because, oh, by the way, that correlates to exactly the decision on where do you want to be on the battlefield? Because wherever leaders go, they will make it better. The question is, are they going to the right place? That's a great way to say it. And a great segue into my final question, which is you've gone on to have a career after the military in the civilian world. Can you take a few minutes to talk about some of the leadership traits and principles, some of those moments? those crystallizing moments from your time in the military, retired general, seeing everything at the micro level as a platoon commander and a, as a young captain jumping out of the plane in Panama, played a you know, major in Mogadishu and then multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, JSOC. What are some of those things that you took away? Because this is my podcast, so I can say it this way if I want to. You know, the military is a fickle mistress and sooner or later she tires of us all. And everybody who's serving now is going to be out someday and they're going to look to the next chapter of their life. And that could be a very scary thing. Reassure some of the people who are listening that are going to be getting out someday. The things that they're learning and experiencing are very valuable. And maybe you can share some stories about how some of those experiences translated over into leadership in a different environment. I would start with the to your point, regardless of whether you do five years or 40 years in the military, you're, you're going to do something else. We all are living too long and we ought to be contributing to society anyway. So to me, the military was one phase of my life and, and I've been in the second phase of my life for the last 10 years. I've been retired 10 years now. Uh, which seems like an incredible amount of time. I probably am going to transition into another stage of life, but it won't be complete retirement because it just doesn't, I don't play golf that well to do it all the time. You're better at it than I am. I did shoot an 80 the other day, feeling good about that. I, I, I think there's things that directly transfer from the military. And then there's some things that don't, you know, depending on what level. I mean, the bottom line is, 
we talked a little, little bit before about discipline and self-discipline. One, one of the key things for anybody that, that's been in the military is you've been through an environment of discipline. You've been, regardless of which service, regardless of what you did in the military, there was an environment of discipline that you went through and operated as part of a team. And you may, may have led that or led multiple teams. So, so there's the people aspect to it. And you had the opportunity to share hardship on some level with the teams that you operated with. So you come with a huge advantage over most of your peers from that standpoint. I think the longer you spend in the military, you know, obviously the more the larger organizations you're going to lead and you and so the ability to lead large complex organizations from a leadership standpoint transfers pretty directly. The ability to put strategy together, that transfers directly. To understand the financial aspects of it not doesn't transfer at all. So you can run the biggest budget in the Department of Defense. It's fundamentally different from running a P&L, a, a profit and loss statement for a private industry. Well, it doesn't mean that people can't do it, but it, it means that you've got to work to do it. And depending on the level the people get out of the military, they're frankly not, you know, they've had a successful career and they're not willing to put the work required in to learn the language, learn the finances, learn the how to incentivize in that world. For those that are willing to put the time, effort, and energy into it, most of them do, do, do pretty well. Some of them never get it. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that because you do have the unique perspective of going on and having a second career after a, a very full and impactful career in the military. I really liked how you rolled everything up, stories about a young officer and how you joined the Ranger Regiment. You learned the meaning of culture and the, the creed and how important that was to everything that had to do with that unit during a time that was very difficult post-Vietnam and some of the leadership lessons or some of the leadership uh, challenges that take place there. And then going on and talking about the definition of courage being something where you're not operating without fear, but operating with fear and how training and confidence and drive are part of the things that help leaders overcome courage, operating with fear and giving them the courage and how preparing training, knowing that no matter how hard you try, you're probably always going to have people quit and how the mind gives out before the body. And you transitioned into a really interesting word, which I think may be one of the most important things to come out of the past two hours, which is the definition of deliberate courage, the medevac pilot who flies back in and out of relative safety. And then we spent some time talking about your time in Panama and how that was, was interesting, but it wasn't until Somalia that you really started to see some of that deliberate courage in action, people coming back with shot up vehicles and blood all over them, back to relative safety, and then getting back in them and going back out because of that Ranger Creed, because of that, I shall never fail my comrades. And I hope I got some of that part of the Ranger Creed right again. I'm, I'm operating off my uh, memory here, but and, and how important it was to realize that momentum can be a game changer. And as a leader, you have to assess where the momentum is where it's going and how quickly it's changing and think through how you can stop negative momentum and turn it back in your favor because it can exponentially build on itself. And you do a lot of that through training. And you talked about some of the big four that came out of the lessons learned with the Rangers experience in Somalia and how that reshaped a lot of the thinking about 
training in the Ranger Regiment, and then you were involved in transforming the regiment into those from the big operations into the small operations, and then discovering how important self-discipline was and how there was a difference between discipline and self-discipline. And you gave some examples about using good discipline that I associated with being a creative thinker and how that fed into leaving something better than you found it and how there's a difference between direct leadership and indirect leadership and how those words come into play as you get farther and farther along in an organization, you're, there is a transition point from direct leadership into indirect leadership. And those can be two totally different things. And how your behavior and your interaction with subordinate leaders and soldiers can be very impactful because the one time that you have an interaction with them as an older, as a more senior officer can really have a lasting impact because you don't see them every single day. You also used another term with by, with, and through others, which I thought was a really great way of explaining what indirect leadership is and enabling leaders and how the farther out you go, the more positive you need to be. And then you had a really interesting phrase, which I think is something that young leaders should remember as it related to the Pat Tillman incident, where you said, there's no friendly fire inside the range of weapons. Uh, it's such a succinct way of saying, hey, as a leader, make sure you're in control of things and understanding that a crisis doesn't feel different if it's smaller. And you have to be a creative problem solver and understand how to take command of a situation and stay level-headed. You very interestingly then concluded with a quick conversation about how things that you do in the military don't necessarily transition well over to the civilian world. And you mentioned that you could have all the discipline and experience being on a team and sharing hardship, but if you don't learn to take responsibility for transitioning over into a new language and a new culture and a new environment in the civilian world, that you won't be able to leverage those big advantages that you have over your peers when you do end up leading in a civilian organization that is measured more about your ability to manage as well as lead rather than just lead because money's involved. And you need to understand those skill sets and obtain those skill sets when you transition so that you can be successful in leveraging all the experiences that you've had as a leader. And I just thought that was a fantastic two-hour lead up into that final comment about transitioning into the civilian world that I think is really, really valuable to a lot of people. Appreciate your time. And I'm going to give you the last few minutes to just jump in and say, if there's one leadership trader principle that I found to be more important than anything else, I'd be curious to know what it is. <laughs> I, well, let me, before we get to that, let me just follow up because I, I don't know that I articulated well on a transition. I don't mean it negatively in that uh, some people can't run P&Ls. I guess the larger piece is I think there you take the experiences you've had in the military and apply it to something in the next stage of life that you're passionate enough about to put the time, effort, and energy in to build on the things that you've learned from the military to get good at that, whether that's coaching or teaching or you know sales or running a PL, whatever it is. I think the the biggest thing for guys transitioning out of the military is finding a new sense of purpose and a network. And so I think the things that I've tried to do in particularly in some of the nonprofits I work for is is how are we creating a new sense of purpose for guys and gals transitioning out of the military and then building that network around to support and enable that. I think then you can contribute it back. You know, the great thing about the military is you get exposed to a lot, you get a lot of experiences. And we need to, to use that to kind of influence, to continue to influence and connect with the rest of the country slash world. 
uh, I, I think there's, I'm, I'm concerned that the military has gotten isolated and continues to get more isolated over, over time from the rest of society. So that's the, anywhere we can connect, I think is good. Are there any charities or foundations that you're involved with that you want to talk about real quick? I was on the board of Team Red, White, and Blue, which I think is a, is a great charity. It supports soft. Team, Team Red, White, and Blue is really about exactly what I talked about, local grassroots communities focused on largely physical events um, connected with veterans and athletes uh, as a network. Soft Warrior Foundation is focused on education for soft operators that were killed during training or combat, so sending kids to school. Yeah, there's a lot of great ones out there, and if anybody's listening to this that's transitioning, make sure you're researching them and looking them out because there's a lot of resources out there right now for helping people transition. There are some fantastic ones, and you just mentioned some of them. So Yeah, Three Ranger, yeah, Three Ranger Foundation has a very good transition. Mo- most of them now are have at least a portion that's focused on transition and there's so many resources out there your advice is exactly right just reach out uh your question on the single thing about leadership i you know i i don't i i think it's i think it's different at different levels so i'll i'll give you the thing that i used to tell lieutenants because that's kind of the baseline start so and there was three three things one is the integrity absolutely you know integrity because you can't ever recover from that. Two is you've got to give a hundred percent. When you say give a hundred percent, that means that you're putting in the time, effort, energy to be technically and tactically competent. And three, which is the most important, is you got to care more about your people than yourself. So all of those to get back to run full circle into uh, once an eagle. I mean, the major difference between Sam Damon and Courtney Massengill was they were both competent and intelligent and capable. And Damon cared more about his people, still knowing that he had to complete the mission. And Massengale cared more about the mission and himself than his people. And that that carries through regardless of what level you're at. And if that's internalized, then a lot of your questions around moral courage get really simple. If you care more about your organization and your soldiers than your own career, then it's easy. And I want to expand on that real quick. I once had a discussion with a private equity guy who go unnamed about a company. I said that the biggest difference between me and you is when you look at the company, you see numbers. And when I look at the company, I see people that get numbers. And that's a fundamental difference. And we'll never look at the company the same way. I think it's really got to be, you know, understanding that whatever you're doing, people are enabling that. There's a quote that that I have that I just remember from Dave, one of David Hackworth's books. It was Steal My Soldier's Heart. And it says, to be a combat leader in the profession of arms is one of the most noble, most deadly jobs going. It's rough and tough and its rewards are few. But if at the end of the day, the troops say, he's a good man, as opposed to he was a nice guy, that's pretty much as good as it gets. It kind of summarizes summarizes what you were saying about care more about your people than yourself. I, I wrote that quote down as a kid when I wrote when I read that book before I ever came in the mil- when I knew I was coming into the military and I've I've kept it at close hand now I just keep it on my phone. But it sums up a lot of what you just said. I think yours are more succinct, succinct, and to the point, which is you know integrity, give one hundred percent, and that means taking the time and effort and energy to be tactically and technically proficient. Most importantly, care more about your people than you do yourself. And if you do those things as a leader, I think you're setting yourself up for success, whether it's in the military or in the civilian world. 
Yeah, and that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to be a general or a colonel. It just means you're going to be successful. You know, at the end of the day, soldiers may not know that you care more about them than yourself. But at the end of the day, you know it. And you know the, the decisions you've made. You know the criteria that you've made those decisions through. So, you know, you can, you can fool a lot of people, but you're not going to fool yourself much. That's right. The biggest critic is, is your mirror in your bathroom. General Craig Nixon, thank you so much for your time. We went, we went over, but you had so many valuable things to say. I'm glad we spent a little extra time talking today. Silver Star, Bronze Stars, Defense Superior Service Medal. There's more. Those are the ones I remember from your bio. An amazing leader, experience, combat in some of the toughest times in the last three decades. Not only are you a hero, but you're one of the most humble people I know. I really appreciate you agreeing to take some time to talk to people who are listening that are embarking upon their initial journey of being leaders in the military or even in the civilian world and sharing some of your moments that you experienced over a 30-year career that were so crystallizing to you that they were worth sharing. I appreciate it. I know they appreciate it. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. And next time I see you, I promise you, you'll be the one doing push-ups on the golf course and not me because I'm going to beat you next time. Well, there's always hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, General Nixon, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure.